Hmm, Barney's movie had heart, but football in the groin had a football in the groin. Don't cry for me. I'm already dead. Wow. I'll never drink another beer. Beer here. I'll take ten. Welcome back, everybody. It's a new month, and time to start a whole new rotation of Naples Ultra episodes. I hope everybody had a great last week of January. Mine was far less productive than I was hoping it would be, but I'm certainly happy to put the month of January behind me. January is not an easy month for most people. In fact, it's generally the worst month of the year for everybody. Because, for whatever reason, the highest amount of bad things, such as suicides, divorces, rates of depression, they all happen in January. And, for myself, I'm happy to put this January behind me. Before we get into the actual show, though, there is quite a bit I'd like to discuss. The first thing I'd like to discuss is a sensitive topic, and one we haven't approached so far on this podcast, which is money. And this is something I've struggled with since the start of the show, because the two main ways that podcasters make money are both very uncomfortable for me to pursue personally. At the same time, though, I want to be forward with my own intentions, and that is I hope to at some point make the creation of this show my full-time profession. And there's no way that goal can be achieved without this show making money at some point in time. So what are the two main ways that podcasters do make money? The first is advertising, and the second is listener donations. The reason I'm uncomfortable with advertising is because this show is all about reasonable analysis and giving you the tools in order to help you become an independent thinker. And I feel that taking money to promote a product is contrary to that goal. So what I am going to commit to 100% is never having advertising on the main website itself. However, at some point, I may put small advertisement snippets at the beginning, middle, or end of the show. However, it would only be for a product or service which I believe is in accordance with the principles of the show itself. So if advertising was the best path to walk down in order to create revenue for the podcast, I would at least make sure that I'm not trying to promote something which is in direct opposition to the stated goals of the show. The second method, listener donations, also makes me uncomfortable because I've never felt particularly comfortable asking people for money. I've always felt that those I'm asking for money could probably put it to better use than I could, and to me it's never seemed like a particularly polite thing to do. As well, I don't want to put a price on knowledge. I want to give it freely and willingly. Ultimately though, given the two options, being beholden to some advertiser or being beholden to the listeners of the show for revenue generation, I would far rather be beholden to the listeners of the show. As well, a few of you have approached me and commented on some of the blogs and podcasts that you would like to help out, that you would like to support the show. So, with that in mind, for the foreseeable future, I am axing the idea of having advertising 
in the show or on the website. So with that in mind, it was time that I got over my reservations and set up a Patreon account. And I'm going to ask you listeners one simple thing. If you thought this podcast or any of the previous podcasts were valuable, if they enhanced your knowledge or understanding, if they gave you a new perspective, or if you just thought they were interesting, then I ask you to donate whatever amount you think is appropriate for this work. In the very short term, what I would like is for this podcast to at least be a revenue neutral source in my life. It takes about $50 a month to pay for the services that keep this podcast operational. So being able to fund at least that would be a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. Two things I do want to say before we move into the actual episode for today is that first off, if you live in the United States, Europe, or the UK, then any money you donate to the Patreon account will be converted into Canadian dollars. And because the Canadian dollar is so weak right now, giving something like 5 bucks US is really more like $7.25 to $8 Canadian for me. So if you're donating in a foreign currency, then you're already giving me 25 to 50% more without doing anything. And if we do get a lot of donations, then I have some pretty cool expansion plans for the show. First off, being a Naples Ultra YouTube channel. Originally, my idea with this YouTube channel was just to take snippets of this podcast, put them up on YouTube with some video and accompanying clips, and use that as a promotional tool. But I want to expand that into doing sort of mini documentaries or exploratory pieces. For example, I wanted to do one video about the gun laws in Canada and specifically what it takes to buy a gun in this country. So I personally don't own a gun license. So I thought it would be a cool mini experiment to show what you have to do to get a gun in this country and what our gun regulations are really like. And the plan wouldn't to be to editorialize it in any way, shape, or form. Just show the process and let people make up their own minds on the gun laws within this country, as well to see if there's anything valuable that they can use in their own countries. I worked it out, and the costs of producing a mini-documentary of this nature would be a modest $500. So if something like that is what you want to see, then by all means, I'd love to make it possible. Another thing I've wanted to do is just take my camera out to some of the undiscovered places of knowledge in this province and this country. For example, in a small town about three hours south of here, there happens to be a world-class dinosaur museum, the Royal Tyrell Museum. And this is one of the coolest places I've ever been to, if you're a science geek. So I'd love to take my camera and just go through the Royal Tyrell Museum, showing off the exhibits, doing interviews with the staff members, and all that good stuff. The only thing I need to do this video is a better method of capturing audio from my camera. I already have a decent portable video camera. I just have no way to capture good audio from it. And that's the state of our union, I suppose you could say, after our one-week break. We'll return briefly to listener donations at the end of the show, 
But for now, I'm eager to get into it and start the seventh episode of Naples Ultra Pop Culture Culture. So I started to walk into the water. I won't lie to you, boys. I was terrified. But I pressed on. And as I made my way past the breakers, a strange calm came over me. I, I don't know if it was divine intervention or the kinship of all living things, but I tell you, Jerry, at that moment, I was a marine biologist. George, I've just been reading this thing in the paper. It's unbelievable. I know, I was just telling the story. Well, come on, George, finish the story. The sea was angry that day, my friends. Like an old man trying to send back soup in a deli. I got about 50 feet out and suddenly the great beast appeared before me. I tell you, he was 10 stories high if he was a foot. As if sensing my presence, he let out a great bellow. I said, easy, big fella. And then, as I watched him struggling, I realized that something was obstructing its breathing. From where I was standing, I could see directly into the eye of the great fish. Mammal. Whatever. Hey, what did you do next? Well, then, from out of nowhere, a huge tidal wave lifted me, tossed me like a cork, and I found myself right on top of him, face to face with the blowhole. I, I, I could barely see from the waves crashing down upon me, but I knew something was there. So I reached my hand in, felt around, and pulled out the obstruction. What, is that a tidal list? <laughs> a hole in one, huh? I suppose an alternate title to this episode could have been A Tale of Two Conversations because it was two conversations that really brought into my mind what we're going to talk about today. The first conversation was with my lovely wife and my wife is less willing to share some of her personal details online than I am. So I try to be a little bit less detailed when talking about her. So I hope you don't mind if there are some things that I leave out. But as most of you may know, my wife is an immigrant. Twice. Originally born in India, she moved to California when she was very young. And then a couple of years ago, she moved to Canada so we could be together. When you see my wife, you can tell that she was born in India. She looks like a young Indian woman. However, when she talks, she sounds like a Californian. No hint of an accent whatsoever. Speaks English better than most people who speak English. There's no way by talking to her that you'd ever be able to tell that English is in fact her second language. And when it comes to her cultural preferences, she is 100% Americanized. And when you ask her what she considers her home to be, she will say America, not India. There's an expression that's sometimes used for Americanized Asian people. They're called bananas because they're yellow on the outside and white on the inside. If we take that as an accepted term, then my wife is definitely a coconut. Brown on the outside, white on the inside. Yet, despite all all that, there are still moments when she feels that she is not 100% Americanized. 
there are still moments when she very much so feels like an immigrant and not a member of the native cultural group here in both Canada and the United States. A while back, I was having a conversation with my wife, asking her at what times does she most feel like an immigrant? At what times does she most often feel like an outsider, even though she's lived in North America for close to two decades? And her answer to me was extremely revealing. Her answer was, I feel most like an outsider when people are making pop culture references, especially if those references come from the 80s or early 90s, before she moved to the United States. And this is when I started to really realize how big an impact pulp culture has on our daily lives and our interactions with others in this country. But for quite some time, I laid that idea to rest, until I had another conversation with a former co-worker of mine. This guy was about my age, and depending on what was going on in the world that particular day, he would tell you a different story about where he was from. So, depending on what was going on, he was either from Lebanon or from Saudi Arabia. Very smart guy. I remember having a conversation with him about Saudi Arabia and about my displeasure with the current geopolitical situation surrounding that country. And he's like, look man, you guys created the Saudi regime. Before the Saudis found out that they had oil, they were living in one of the most technologically backwards places in the world. Most of these people had never seen electricity or knew what a car was. Then, all of a sudden, you've essentially told them that they've won the natural resources lottery and funneled ridiculous amounts of money into the country. So all of a sudden, you have this group of uneducated and completely technologically backwards people given huge sums of money. And he told me, can you really be surprised when this group of uneducated people doesn't use their newfound monetary power to go out and spread culture and enlightenment throughout the world? And I found that a very interesting perspective. However, in another conversation, more related to the topic that's actually at hand, I was asking him what he felt were the major differences between people in Lebanon and Saudi Arabia versus Canadians. So, in his answer, he lumped both Canadians and Americans together, and he said that your styles of conversing and humor are completely different and absolutely foreign to most people from other countries. He said that your entire humor is based off referencing things from TV shows, from movies, from video games, and you have to know these references in order to be liked. And that's when the switch really went off in my head. I was reminded of that earlier conversation with Jasmine and everything started to make sense. That night when I went home, I committed Jasmine to a stringent regiment of cultural education in which I would catch her up with the most popular TV shows out there so she could understand the references that people make. So we marathoned The Simpsons just the first 10 seasons. Didn't go beyond that. We also watched South Park, Friends, and Seinfeld. 
So now she has a better understanding of the references that people will make on a daily basis. Being able to surface these pop culture references is extremely important in connecting with people in both Canada and the United States. Having worked in sales before, I noticed one of the best ways to build rapport with your customers is to make a well-timed Simpsons reference. But I wasn't able to put it all together until people from outside this country framed it in a way that I hadn't seen before. One thing had become abundantly clear. In North America, pulp culture is our culture. So let's break that down. What do I mean here? So, on the North American continent, we have two former British colonies, which in the grand scheme of human history, are incredibly new countries. Just about every other country in the world has had centuries, and in some cases, millennia, in order to define its identity and culture. When we look across the world, we'll see countries like France, Germany, China, Korea, Japan, India, Egypt, all of whom have a long and storied historical past and cultural identities that have been forged over the course of centuries. These people have binding cultural phenomenon that have developed and kept them together for far longer than anything we have to reference in North America. These countries have religious icons, languages, a shared history that extends back centuries, and historical institutions that outlive even the greatest of grandparents. In North America, we have almost none of these things, and those which we do have are far less developed than what you can find in these older cultures. Let's take an example like India. India has so many ancient cultural traditions that people understand and reference to guide their daily lives. For example, they are the only country in the world that is predominantly Hindu. Therefore, they have established religious traditions that everybody in the Hindu parts of India understand and even those who are not necessarily in the Hindu parts of India understand. As well, they have shared historical context that further refines their identity. For example, subjugations by the Mughal Empire and later the British Empire have had profound effects on shaping what it means to be a member of the Indian culture. Let's look at another country, Germany. I remember at one point a German exchange student when I was going through university pointed out to me that Germany was a newer country than Canada as it achieved its confederation and unification later than Canada did. But I found this very disingenuous because there has been a German identity that has existed since before the Roman Empire and unfortunately it took the German people a long time to unite into a cohesive unit, that doesn't mean there hasn't been a concept of Germanness that has existed for millennia. And Germans take great pride in pre-Confederation German figures, such as Charles the Great, or, if you're French, Charlemagne, whom the Germans make a very compelling argument, was actually a German historical figure instead of a French one, as well as they take great pride in some of the Holy Roman Emperors. And, of course, 
their chancellor, who did in fact unite the country, Otto von Bismarck. Of course, there are German religious identifiers which bind the people together. For example, that German states were instrumental and in fact the starting point for the Protestant Reformation. And of course, we could continue listing off similar examples for other European nations. And this to me is one of the reasons why multiculturalism has been less successful in European nations than in the United States and Canada. Because the idea of what it means to be an Englishman, a Frenchman, a German, have existed in societies which were overwhelmingly homogeneous for centuries. So how fair is it to expect that these countries would just drop these national identifiers that have been so important to them for such a long time. And I don't think it's unfair, considering the history of European countries, that they might have a higher bar for assimilation than us in North America. Because they know what it means to be a member of that culture. And if you're going to join that country then you better make a damn effort that you're going to assimilate into the cultural identity of it. In Canada, though, we have absolutely no conception of what it means to be an ideal Canadian. There is no such thing as an ideal Canadian. It's not like as soon as you come to Canada, we expect you to immediately go out and buy a flannel shirt, get out there, start chopping down trees drinking nothing but maple syrup, playing hockey 24 hours a day. No, the only thing we ask of people coming into this country is that they be polite and be respectful. With that being said, though, just because we don't have the same type of history that these older countries throughout the world do, that does not mean that we don't have a culture. In fact, our culture has come about in a way that is completely new and unique in the history of mankind. One of the great exports of North America, and this export is almost exclusively an American export with some Canadian participation sometimes, is our entertainment export. American TV shows and movies have found their way into every corner of the world. However, nowhere is it more embedded than in the countries of America and Canada, as these two countries would be some of the first to make television easily accessible to all members of its population. And before you knew it, just about every household had one, and everyone was tuning in at the same time to watch the same things. Then, when you would go out and see your co-worker, or your friend, or your family member the next day, chances are, you both watched TV last night, and you could spend time conversing about it. You can ask people what they thought, if they enjoyed it, what they would change, what they thought was funny. And this instantaneously became a way for people to connect with one another. And it filled an important gap which was non-existent in North American culture up to that point. And that gap is some sort of universal cultural identification and connection method. In older cultures, you could connect with other people of that same culture based upon shared history, shared religion, or shared institutions, something that the diverse and pluralistic United States lacked. But now, when everybody was tuning in 
and watching at the same time, all of a sudden, that connection was able to exist in a form that it previously didn't. And it only took off from there. As TV shows increased in both quality and quantity, it was impossible not to get caught up in the schoolyard or water cooler talk about the latest and greatest piece of entertainment out there. The truth is, we are never more North American than when we're talking about The Simpsons, Family Guy, South Park, or any of the other innumerable entertainment pieces out there that have influenced our lives. And you know what? People sneer at this, and it's not tough to figure out why. I mean, when you ask an Egyptian person to go through some of their cultural and historic markers, they'll say, oh, we have the pyramids, the pharaohs, you know, that whole cradle of civilization thing. And what do you got, North Americans? You got the Simpsons. Sad day for you. But I wouldn't get quite so smug, because American culture, if you'll forgive the pun, will have the last laugh. For as much as American culture is ignored and disregarded as inferior by the rest of the world, they have entirely missed the beauty of it and what makes it so appealing. People talk about this idea of cultural appropriation, and this is something I have extraordinarily strong feelings about in the sense that I feel it's a completely illegitimate argument. For those of you who don't know, cultural appropriation is this idea that predominantly white people are stealing and exploiting other people's cultures. The great irony here, though, is that if we accept that idea as legitimate, then the culture in the world that gets the most appropriated is American culture. Because American culture has become so universal that it's seen to not exist at all. It has almost become the default benchmark culture which everything is measured against. And when you become the measuring stick, sometimes people forget that you were ever previously measured. Let me explain what I mean a little bit better through the use of an analogy. As most of you probably know, I'm a huge fan of strategy games. Whether they're turn-based, in real time, small or large, I just can't get enough. And one of my favorite all-time strategy franchises is the Civilization franchise. And for those of you who have never had the opportunity to play Civilization, well, go out and play it. But if you don't know the basic premise of the game, essentially, you start off with a group of settlers, you found a city, you research technologies, build armies, gather resources, and expand until your civilization is the most dominant civilization in the world. And it goes through all the eras of human history, starting off in the prehistoric age, and then going all the way up to our modern day, and sometimes to the future. In a game of civilization, there are multiple ways that you can achieve victory. The most straightforward path to victory is conquest, which is you just subjugate all your enemies and take them over by force. However, there are non-military victories. There are scientific victories. 
there are economic victories, there are diplomatic victories, but for the purposes of our conversation, the most important victory condition is the cultural victory. And what the cultural victory means is essentially that you've created a culture that is so appealing and so widely accepted by the rest of the civilizations in the world that you have essentially turned all these other civilizations into your civilization because you have exported your culture to these other civilizations to the point where everybody in them lives the exact same way, speaks the same language, and strives to act like a member of your civilization. Sound familiar? I'm going to submit that if real life were like a game of civilization, then America would have already won the cultural victory. How did they do this? Entertainment. They've effectively created these small bunches of culture that are easily exportable and consumed. When you factor in what we've already discussed, which is that pulp culture entertainment can readily and easily become a cultural identifier for those who consume it and share it, and thus allowing them to easily and quickly relate to other members of that cultural group, you have the building blocks for a worldwide culture, for a universal, planet-wide culture. And I think America has done exactly that. These big Hollywood pieces of entertainment, these iconic TV shows and video games, can easily be translated into other languages and consumed by people in their native countries. And all of a sudden, you have a method to easily connect with people from other cultures because while I may not know a whole lot about the religious traditions of Hinduism, chances are though, depending on the class of the individual, that person probably knows about the Simpsons and I can easily engage with them on that basis. But let's say you're a person who doesn't like that. Let's say you're a person who doesn't like the influence American culture has had on the rest of the world. What can you do about it? As well, within this, I kind of want to tackle the question of how things will change and evolve in the future, and if some culture will come to dominate American culture and export itself around the world. Personally, I think if you don't like American culture, there's not a lot you can do about it, besides refusing to consume North American entertainment. Entertainment is the easiest way to export your cultural values onto another civilization. So with that in mind, until some civilization out there comes up with some comparable method of creating and exporting entertainment as America has, I think American culture will continue to dominate the world for quite some time. What I think is far more likely to happen is that other cultures will start producing their own entertainment and they will just be added into the hodgepodge of pop culture culture. While the Americans may have gotten the ball rolling, once the ball is rolling, they can no longer control it. And other countries will start creating their own entertainment pieces that people in North America will start consuming and it will become part of their own pop culture lexicon. And we can see that already happening. A huge example of this 
is Japanese entertainment. Both in terms of video games and TV shows, Japan has produced some truly amazing pieces of entertainment that have influenced people all over the world, including North America. Britain is also another country which produces some fabulous movies and TV shows that you can make a strong argument are superior to American ones. And don't even get me started talking about the extremely profound influence British rock bands have had across the world. And now new countries are starting to add their own work into the pop culture culture. Korea is certainly a rising star, I believe, in this regard. India as well with their powerful Bollywood entertainment industry. But I think the best area to watch in regards to new and future entertainment is Eastern Europe. Predominantly when it comes to video games because Polish developer released The Witcher 3 last year which received universal acclaim. Russian developers have created the World Of series that continues to be one of the most influential MMOs out there and not to mention that Russia has some incredible war movies as well as some really fantastic rock and rap bands that just haven't been discovered in the rest of the world quite yet. So as Eastern European culture becomes freer and more open, I definitely think they will be making some powerful contributions to the entertainment culture of the world. Before I go though, I want to bring up a little tongue-in-cheek idea that I had, and then I realized I probably shouldn't implement it in practice. I originally planned to do this episode in a far more satirical manner. I planned to do this episode from a stance of moral outrage and trying to defend the meek and innocent. What I was originally going to do was to pick up on this idea that my wife felt uncomfortable in circumstances where people were making pop culture references. They were the times when she felt most alien and alone. So for this episode, I planned to invent this made-up thing called pop culture privilege and argue that people need to tone down their pop culture references because it makes people from other countries feel uncomfortable, alone, and unsafe. So the only way we can create a truly safe atmosphere for people from other countries is to scrub our language of these references. But I had two fears about doing this kind of episode. One is I feared that people wouldn't be able to tell that I was joking and they would get the impression that I was serious about this idea. Or two, that even if people could tell I was joking, it might become an actual thing anyway, a new avenue for people to glom onto in the race to create perpetually new and more bizarre ideas about how people can be offended. And thus, my joke would ruin pulp culture for everybody. Certainly not what I wanted. So I wanted on the record that if this ever becomes a thing, I did not condone it, I was not serious about it, and the idea of pulp culture privilege was something I made up to be satirical. As well, the episode I produced today, I think is far more interesting than what I was originally planning. So before I end the episode, let me leave you with one last thought. I love cartoons. I love movies. I love video games. I love comics. 
I love it all. But the purpose of this episode wasn't to encourage everybody to go out and watch TV and movies in a mission to become more culturally educated. No, there needs to be a fine balance in life. And this podcast certainly doesn't advocate that you should spend your whole time in deep philosophical analysis or your whole time watching TV shows. No, it is up to us to live balanced and fulfilling lives. It can't be all serious all the time, but it also can't be all fun all the time. As well, I hope you understand the power and influence that pulp culture has in our society. That despite how you may feel about the current status of our culture, American pulp culture culture is here to stay and is only going to expand throughout the world. By recognizing and accepting this fact, you can now plot an accurate path for the future, regardless of your feelings. And that's what we're all about here at Naples Ultra, helping you understand the present through the past so you can plot an accurate path forward based on your own internal principles and ideas. And with that, we've reached the end of Lucky Number 7. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll look forward to Episode 8. And in this episode, I'm going to be taking up an argument that has been requested multiple times by my lovely wife. She has asked me repeatedly to take up the topic of free will. And that's exactly what we'll be doing next week. Examining the age-old question of whether or not humans truly have free will or we just think we do. So I hope you'll join us next week for episode 8. Free Will Fallacies. Welcome back, everybody, to the second part of Naples Ultra. We've got a lot to talk about and not a lot of time to do it. So let me first make an announcement about listener submissions. We are now on Twitter. Hooray! Naples Ultra is on Twitter. The handle is at NPU Podcast. And we will be taking any and all listener submissions from Twitter as well. So if you've wanted to make a submission to the podcast, but don't like to use email or any of the other methods that we have right now, then Twitter might be an easy and sensible alternative for you. As well, at the start of the show, we mentioned we do have a Patreon account. It's kind of barren right now, but more will be added to it as time goes on especially as I set up the YouTube channel to accompany and promote this podcast. But for now, I want to make it clear this podcast is for you, the listener, and supported by you, the listener. And I take all your criticisms, feedback, and input incredibly seriously. And now that the podcast will be funded on listener donations, I believe that absolutely entitles you to a say in how this podcast is run. So never hesitate to reach out to me about anything at all. And I humbly request that you donate to this podcast what you believe it is worth. And information for supplying donations is going to be provided in a new page that is going up on the website, as well as in the notes for the show. Thank you guys for indulging me there. And now let's get down to brass taxes. First, we talk about what's been going on in the world recently, and we've been talking about it a lot in the run-up to this event, but 
It's finally happened, and boy, was it an exciting time. Of course, I'm talking about the Iowa caucuses. These happened as I'm recording this podcast currently, as of yesterday, and we've got some pretty interesting results. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about how I feel this will impact the nomination in both parties. First, let's start with the Republicans. Let's go over the results first. I'm only going to read off the results for candidates who actually got delegates. And of course, we're going to go from most to least. I'm also going to round up. So at the top, we have Ted Cruz with 28% of the vote and receiving eight delegates. Right after him, we have Donald Trump with 24% of the vote, receiving seven delegates. And third, we have Marco Rubio with 23% of the vote, receiving seven delegates. Although I have read in some places that he is receiving six, I'm currently taking my results from the Des Moines Register. In fourth, we have Dr. Ben Carson, who received 9% of the votes with three delegates. In fifth, we have Rand Paul with 5% of the vote, receiving one delegate. And finally, Jeb Bush with 3% of the vote, receiving one delegate. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the Iowa caucuses is just the first step in deciding who the presidential nominee will be. They have to go to every single state after this, and it's a process that takes months to complete. And when I mention that these people have delegates, what I mean by that is delegates are essentially votes in your party's nomination. So the number of delegates they receive is based off their proportion of the vote. And every state is different. In the grand scheme of things, Iowa isn't that important. They don't have a lot of delegates to assign for the overall nomination process. It is important in the sense that it is the first electoral contest that these candidates will run up against. And in the past, the results of the Iowa caucus have dramatically shifted the momentum in terms of either party's nomination campaign. So, in the grand scheme of things, Iowa doesn't matter that much, but it also matters a lot. Confused yet? I hope so. So let's talk about what this all means in practical terms. For the Republicans, this is a bad night for Donald Trump. I personally suspected him to win the Iowa caucuses, and as I was reading the initial coverage, things looked pretty good for Trump. They had a high turnout rate with a lot of people voting in the Republican caucuses for the first time. So I thought this would heavily favor Trump. However, I've been hearing reports that a lot of people joined simply to vote against him, which definitely would have been a factor in why he lost. As well, I wonder if there's any impact from the fact he skipped the debate just before the Iowa caucuses. This little event frustrated yours truly greatly because I just simply can never respect a candidate that skips out on debates. Debates are one of the only chances we have left to engage with these candidates in an open forum. And even these debates are now heavily staged, masterminded, and scrubbed of anything that anyone might deem even remotely offensive or upsetting to their campaign. But even after all that, Donald Trump showed his true colors. 
that he's not a tough guy at all. He's a wimp. The reason why he skipped out on that debate is because he didn't like one of the moderators, because she read some of his tweets back to him in the first Republican debate in August. So I'm not sure if that had any impact whatsoever, but it looks like it certainly didn't help him. But the real reason this night might turn into a disaster for Donald Trump is not because he lost to Ted Cruz, which was definitely in the realm of possibility, but it's because of who came in third. Marco Rubio only lost to Trump by 1%, and this was very unexpected. Marco Rubio was pulling nowhere near as well as he did in Iowa, and Iowa is not a state which particularly favors his brand of republicanism. So the fact he did so well, to me, is the real story out of the Republican caucuses. It's shown without a doubt that Marco Rubio is going to be the establishment candidate and has a far better chance of winning the nomination than was previously expected. Donald's certainly not out yet, but he could face a scenario where he is squeezed out by Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Ted Cruz being the obvious anti-establishment candidate and Marco Rubio being the obvious establishment candidate. And it might actually rob Donald Trump of his momentum. We'll have to see what happens next week. Donald Trump has a strong lead, according to polling in New Hampshire, the next state to go to primaries. And if that lead holds up, it'll show that Donald Trump is definitely still a contender. However, if he loses New Hampshire, then I think Donald Trump's campaign is over. Trump can also take comfort in the fact that Iowa has not decided the Republican nominee for quite some time. So for the past few election cycles, the candidate who wins Iowa goes on to not win the nomination. On the Democratic side of things, a very different story. Iowa has decided the nominee for decades. So let's talk about the Democratic nomination in Iowa, the results of which offer a far less clear picture from which to draw conclusions from. In the Democratic nomination, it's a two-way race between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and Iowa certainly showed it was a tight two-way race. With 100% of the votes being counted, Hillary Clinton received 49.86% of the vote in comparison to Bernie Sanders' 49.57% of the vote, meaning if you round up, they both got 50%. Hillary Clinton only won by a margin of five votes, so there's no question it was a down-to-the-wire race. You also have to factor in the third candidate, Martin O'Malley, who got a measly 0.57% of the vote. However, if a candidate receives less than 15% in the Democratic nomination, his supporters have to support one of the other candidates or not vote at all. This means Martin O'Malley's voters could decide who the nominee will be, which is why, to this point, the Des Moines Register still has not called a definitive winner on the Democratic side. What we do know for sure, though, is that Hillary Clinton has secured 22 delegates in comparison to Bernie Sanders' 21 delegates, meaning 
this contest was virtually a tie. And people are kind of scratching their heads and thinking, well, what does a tie mean? Does it help Hillary Clinton? Does it help Bernie Sanders? And to be quite frank, I'm not 100% sure because both of them can claim victory and both of them can make strong arguments as to why they are the victorious party. Bernie Sanders can say, I was the underdog coming into this race and polling showed that I was down by approximately five points. Yet here I come to take on Hillary Clinton, the supposedly unstoppable political machine, and I ground her down into a statistical tie. Well, Hillary Clinton can say, hey, I won. I won Iowa. Doesn't matter what the margin was. I still won. If things pan out that way, we still don't know for sure. And all that really matters is getting that W next to my name, and it will give me the momentum to win the eventual nomination. And I'm not sure which side is right. We'll have to wait and see. Again, though, looking forward to New Hampshire, according to polling data, Bernie Sanders has a substantial lead. And if he's able to maintain that substantial lead until next week, then I think he will still have a chance at winning the Democratic nomination. Ultimately, though, I do think this is a better result for Sanders than it is for Clinton although I think both candidates are pretty disappointed with what the results actually were. That's because Clinton has far greater expectations foisted upon her, where Bernie Sanders was not even considered a serious candidate until a couple weeks ago. And now I think there's no question that he's a serious candidate. And that's a win for Bernie Sanders. So, since I recorded that bit of audio... We've had a couple bits of information surface. One, Hillary Clinton was officially declared the winner shortly after I finished recording. Next, we learned that Hillary Clinton won six of the precincts by coin toss, which is officially the way you are supposed to decide the caucus if it is too close to call. And that was all of the precincts that were up for grabs via coin toss. So she went six for six, which is pretty remarkable. So some people are questioning that. I don't think it's right to question that. It was just an amazing stroke of good luck. However, we are beginning to learn just what a gigantic mess counting the votes in Iowa was. Because as a caucus, you're literally just counting people. And apparently in a lot of these areas, a lot of volunteers were not properly trained on the method for counting and recording them. So there's a ton of ambiguity here. People don't know exactly who won by what margin, but what the results are or what the results are for now. To me, this just illustrates what a dumb system this is for electing your nominee. You're going to let them be decided by coin tosses and vague head counts? I mean, it's okay when there's a larger disparity between the various candidates, but when it's so close, those fine numbers matter. They're the difference between victory and defeat. And this just adds more to the already several unanswered questions we have coming out of Iowa. And there you go. That's the Iowa rundown. And now let's get to some questions. And the first one I'm going to answer is a piece of criticism. So here we go. Joseph writes in and says, 
Hi, Spencer. I've been mostly enjoying the podcast up until the last episode, because in the last episode, you mentioned that you were not a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. This is deeply distressing to me, as I believe the movement brings up an extremely important issue in our society. That is police brutality and institutionalized racism. You say you don't support the methods that they use, but what are they supposed to do? Just lie down and be executed? How would you approach things differently? Thanks for reading, and I look forward to your response, Joseph. Thanks for the question, Joseph. I think it's fair that I should elaborate on what I said in the other episode, but let me just reiterate something. I don't live in America. I live in Canada. And there's a huge difference between how our two systems of policing are run. For example, in this country, we have a fraction of the police shootings that happen in comparison to the United States. And when it comes to our own most incarcerated population, it is not the black population of Canada, but the aboriginal population of Canada. And that's something this country needs to address. Our relation with our Aboriginal people is an ongoing source of controversy and pain in this country, which could take up an entire episode in and of itself. But let's address your question and criticisms specifically. If I were in charge, the first thing I would do is change the name. That is because they are addressing a very serious issue in our society, police brutality. And police brutality affects everybody, no matter the race. We can all be victims of it, and we should always stand up against police brutality when it presents itself to us. And yes, it's true that police brutality in America is directed at other races disproportionate to their standing numbers within the population. And of course, black people are part of that group which disproportionately is affected by police brutality, but to the same degree, Latinos are also affected by police brutality. So when you call the movement Black Lives Matter, you're automatically creating either a false dichotomy or creating a movement which is automatically exclusionary to people who suffer from the same issues. Black Lives Matter activists, I think, could easily create a broad consensus on police brutality within the United States. Yet, when you call the movement Black Lives Matter, I think it makes people reluctant who aren't black to join the movement, who may be affected by the exact same issues that you are. So, a Latino person might be hesitant to join a movement about police brutality called Black Lives Matter. However, if we had a more inclusive title, then we could build a far broader coalition of people and get more achieved. So that's one aspect I would change. The next aspect I would change is their methods. That is because their methods of protest are extremely disruptive to average everyday citizens. And that is not a way to gain the hearts and minds of the American population. For example, you'll see the protests at the Mall of America in Michigan, which were extremely disruptive to people who were just at the mall to do shopping. And nothing will lose you the hearts and minds of people faster than disrupting their everyday lives. This was an issue that Occupy Wall Street had as well. For example, they did this huge march, I believe it was in Oakland, and blocked off this highway 
for quite a period of time, all marching in celebration of the cause. However, if you're just a guy trying to get to work or a mom trying to take her kids to school and you're trying to cross this highway and all these protesters are blocking you, how the heck do you think you're going to feel? Do you think you're going to win her heart or her mind? I think the answer is a pretty definite no. I remember I had a political science professor in university who changed my entire outlook on how to best protest a cause. I remember he told a story because he used to live in Europe for quite some time. And he told a story about how they conduct protests over there. He told me two stories. One is a story about a strike of toll booth workers in Paris. And the way these guys conducted their protests, I think, is ingenious. They still went to work, yet they refused to take money from people going through the toll booth. They just waved everybody through. So if you're an average French person, who are you going to support in this protest? The people trying to take money out of your pockets or the average guy who still went to work but just refused to take money from you? He just let you through in a scenario where you would have had to pay anyway. The next is a story about a protest of Italian meat and cheese producers. And what they did here was twofold. First, they started giving away a lot of their meat and dairy products for free to people around the country. Next, they staged a protest where they were able to block off a series of businessmen and executives who were coming to try and quell the crisis. So these protesters blocked them off on the road on a specified area and then brought out the manure tanks and sprayed manure all over these guys, all over their fancy cars, all over their nice suits. And apparently, it was quite a spectacle. So, as an average Italian, who are you going to support? The guys giving you free meat and cheese? Or the manure-soaked business executives? And while the Black Lives Matter protesters might not be able to give away free meat and cheese and shut down toll booths, there are certainly other things they can do to help the community and win over the hearts and minds of the average American citizen. The last thing I want to say is that when these protesters bring up institutionalized racism, I don't feel they've exactly nailed what the problem is, because a lot of what they claim is institutionalized racism is to me easily and more logically explained through other variables besides institutionalized racism. They'll claim institutionalized racism in certain police departments and while I believe there's probably no question that there are racist cops out there, a lot of these issues they bring up to me seems more like crappy police training rather than institutionalized racism. So to me, it seems like they're jumping to a conclusion unnecessarily. However, I'm happy to see any evidence provided to the contrary. I hope that answered your question, Joseph, and I hope you'll continue to listen to the podcast. Unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. Usually, I like to do a minimum of three questions. Unfortunately, this week, I don't have the time available to me to edit the podcast that I usually do. So, we're going to have to cut it a little shorter than usual. We'll make up for it next week by having an extra long listener segment. This question comes from Sean Murphy. He writes... Hello Spencer, great work on the podcast so far. I am really enjoying it 
and I've been telling my friends to check it out. My question is in regards to how the media responds to violent tragedies such as bombings, shootings, etc., and how this might promote more violence. I got to thinking about this subject after hearing about the school shooting that took place in Saskatchewan. In the past, I've noticed that when it comes to reporting on tragedies such as mass shootings, the Canadian media seems to do a much better job of it than American news outlets. Living in the United States, whenever something like this happens, I notice the media reports on the person who committed the deed itself rather than the victims. First, there is the initial fact reporting when the news first breaks. And once a bit of time passes, it shifts to the perpetrator, who they are, where they're from, why they did it, etc. The media turns a horrible criminal into a celebrity overnight. Since you live in Canada, maybe you can tell me otherwise, but it is almost always the fact, it seems to me, that the Canadian news outlets focus on reporting the facts, then on reporting on the victims rather than the criminal themselves. Obviously, there are many more factors that play into it, but I must wonder if how the American media reports on these events, providing endless attention to the criminal and making them famous, may be one of the reasons these sorts of tragedies are getting so seemingly commonplace in the United States. A mentally disturbed individual in the state of mind to commit such tragedies might be encouraged by the potential attention and a politically or religiously motivated person could see the inevitable media attention as the perfect way to make themselves and their beliefs known nationwide. Do you think that the media putting most of their focus on the people who commit these acts may be encouraging other individuals to use such terrible methods as shootings and bombings to further their own ends? And if so, do you think some legislation should be pursued that would regulate the manner in which news outlets can report on these types of stories? I look forward to hearing your thoughts and good luck with the podcast. Sean Murphy Excellent question, Sean. And when I finished reading this, it immediately occurred to me that we still do not know the motive of the Laloche, Saskatchewan shooter. And for those of you who don't know about this story, what happened was on January 22nd, in the northern reaches of the province of Saskatchewan, in a small town numbering only about 2,000 people, a young 17-year-old boy opened fire at the community school and killed four people and injured seven more. An absolute tragedy. It was also unusual because shootings don't seem to often happen in small rural communities like this, especially of this high number. But what I mentioned before, we still don't know the motive of the shooter. In fact, we don't even know his identity. And this is because, under Canadian law, it is illegal to publish the names of youth offenders. All that we know is, according to some of his classmates, that he was bullied at school because of his appearance. We can also speculate on a number of things. One thing a lot of people are speculating on is the fact that these communities, these northern Canadian communities, just don't have enough support. 
It sucks to live in rural northern Canada. There's no question about it. It's difficult to get resources up there as the roads aren't always the best. Plus, they can be routinely blocked due to weather. The internet infrastructure is not good and it is extremely difficult to keep professionals in these northern rural communities. By professionals, I mean people like doctors, like teachers, and the only reason they have a strong police force is because, like I mentioned in a previous episode, the RCMP is distributed based on where it's needed. So there has to be police coverage in these northern communities. So anyway, long story short, a lot of people are saying that the lack of support and resources in this northern community of Laloche could have had profound impacts on this shooter. So that's a huge difference between Canadian and American media. We still don't know the motive of this shooter now a good 10 days after the fact. As well, we still don't know his name. So he can't become a mini-celebrity in that way. As well, after any American shooting, you know all about the people who did it within generally a couple days. Like the San Bernardino shooters, we knew everything about the guy, where his wife came from, why he probably committed the crime, but nobody sat there and asked themselves, why did this happen and are there any common sense measures we can take to prevent it in the future? Again, Contrast it to the Saskatchewan shooting, where we're all talking about how we can bolster support for these northern communities. But as a general rule, I've definitely noticed that Canadian news is a lot more benign than American news. I'm not sure if that's because just less exciting things happen in this country, or if that's just the way the news goes. And some Canadian headlines can be just awesome. Like you'll read a headline that says something like, Moose wanders into Tim Hortons. And you think, wow, this was an exciting day in Canadian news. I've also noticed an American tendency to put these powerful adjectives in their headlines. So you'll read headlines like, Grizzly murder, brutal slaying, and so on and so forth. So there's definitely a lot of merit to your point that these sensationalized news stories that are consumed so readily contribute to an influx of mass shootings. It's really amazing because you'll notice that the rates of individual shootings are going down, yet the rates of mass shootings are going up. So is it possible that some guy who has a crappy life just wants to go out with a bang so he'll be remembered? I certainly think so. As well, there is no shortage of political-minded shootings in the United States. Both the San Bernardino shooting was a political-minded shooting, and the shooting at a Planned Parenthood, which happened just before San Bernardino. But what I don't agree with you on is that there should be legislation to control this. I think that opens up a whole can of worms in terms of potential censorship that just isn't worth going down. Because sadly, we can sit here and speculate on the cause and effect relationship between media sensationalizing these mass shootings and their numbers, but there is no way we can assume there is a causal relationship here. And without that evidence, to me, 
I could never commit to such legislation. Thanks for writing in, Sam. I hope that answered your questions. And with that, we are at the end of Episode 7 of Naples Ultra. Sorry we didn't get as many questions in as I would like, but we'll make up for it next week. When it comes to the questions we ask at the end of every episode, I'm thinking about phasing them out, or at least changing them around. And that is because people seem to be less inclined to answer these questions than to submit feedback questions or topic suggestions. So I'm not quite sure what to do with these end of episode questions. So that will be the question for this week. What do you think we should do with these end of the episode questions? And with that, this is Spencer Downing signing off for now. And let me take you out with the responses to last week's question. Thank you all for listening and I'll see you next week. Our first response comes from Ricky, and Ricky says, Marcus Aurelius all the way. You don't need to respond to social media harassment. You should just ignore it and go about your life. In a similar vein, Alex writes in and says, the best way to respond to social media harassment is not to feed the harassment. Simple as that. Again, in a similar vein, Sean writes in, a different Sean, and he says, the more time you spend thinking about the trolls, the more they win. Get on with your life already. And that's it for me. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.